again, so that's, uh, that's kind of going. It's a great pleasure to see you all here today. Um, it's particularly nice to see some old friends and also some faces that I don't recognise. My own associations with theoretical physics go back to 1979, which is a scarily long time ago. Um, some of you, I guess, it must be longer ago. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, it's, uh, it's, great, it's great to see you all back. And this is a new idea. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, look forward to hearing your, you know, your views about, about how, how it works. Um, one of the things that's changed about theoretical physics, as you'll see from James's first slide, is that th these days it's called the Rudolf Pyle Center. That, that was done uh, when, and when Dick Dallas was still alive. It was one of Dick's determinations to get Rudy uh, recognized in a very sort of public way. Um, and eventually, after you know, many years of campaigning and and arguing with the University States Department, uh, he managed to get the name, the name board on the door to the Rudolf Pyle Center for Theoretical Physics. But of course, the Rudolf Pyle Center for Theoretical Physics is not a building. I mean, it's a set of people. That's what really matters, of course, uh, and, and to which many of us have belonged over the years. And it will always be a set of people rather than a building. And even if we succeed in changing the building, you know, the people will be what matters. The people will be what, what, makes, the, what makes the center. And um, so I think it's great that we commemorate Rudy in, in, in this way. Rudy, of course, was really the person who was responsible for founding theoretical physics as a real entity in Oxford. Uh, and and uh, you know, I think he was certainly one of the greatest physicists that, and never to win a Nobel Prize. So uh, I think that, you know, at least in a small way, we can keep his name alive over the years by uh, naming a, you know, a vibrant organization which carries on doing great science after him. I think that, that that's... Uh, that's a, a, a fitting, although insufficient, tribute to me. Um, anyway, I, I won't wrap on up any longer. Um, as I said, this is an experiment. We haven't done something like this before. If it's a success, success we'll do it again. Uh, and of course, if, if there are things, other things that you would like, or other ideas that you have about what we might might do, if you're interested in, in, in hearing more about theoretical physics today, then please just do let us know. You know, either in, either in person. Or, or, or by email whenever you, whenever you feel like it. Anyway, so, so welcome, and uh, I'm going to hand over to James, who's going to come first. Welcome again. Uh, it's nice to see all faces, etc. So, here, my general idea is that we're going to, we, what we want to do this morning is give some sense of uh, how uh, the extent to which we understand material reality all of material reality through the concept of field. And I'm going to start with, I'm going to talk principally about classical fields, and Joe will talk about the quantization of fields, and Fabian will talk uh, about um, fields in a, in a context where we know that they're merely an approximation to a more interesting underlying reality, which we suspect is the case vis-a-vis all fields, and so in other words, we don't claim to understand material reality, but we understand it through this, this idea of a field. And I'm going to start by uh, just going over the historical background, how we arrived at the concept of a field, which is a totally non-trivial concept. And the place to start is with uh, Newton. Newton uh, had, had this great insight that any two bodies uh, attracted each other with this force that goes like the product of the masses and inverse of the square of distances. His big insight was that the moon falls towards the earth in exactly the same way as the apple in his Woolsthorpe manor fell towards the ground. He didn't offer any explanation for how this happened. There's no kind of mechanism. There's 
there's no speculation. It's just this is every two bodies, each two bodies at at a distance on each other in this way. Uh, that that works. Coulomb, 60 or so years later, with very clever experiments with charged objects and torsion wires, convinces himself and everybody that that the there is a force. A similar force that acts between two electrically charged bodies that depends on the product of the masses and the inverse of the square of the distances can be attractive, can be repulsive in that case. Um, but shortly afterwards, this simple formula, just as a matter of mathematical convenience, gets broken down into two formulae. First, you say that one of these two charges, it doesn't matter which, say big Q, uh, generates an electric quote unquote field at each point R, by this formula, <coughs> the field is proportional to the charge and goes like the inverse square of the distance. So you have a series of arrows like this pointing out from the charge Q, and that's the electric field, whatever that is. It's just a mathematical tool which enables you to calculate the force on little Q, the other charge, because the force is equal to the product of the charge and the field. So you, you just have a field being a computational uh, intermediary between the two bodies. But you have in fact taken a huge, huge conceptual step. Of course we do this in high school uh, mechanics uh, all the time. We say that the force on a, on a body of mass, little m, is mg, where g is the gravitational field generated by our planet. Now these fields, these electric and gravitational fields, are actually rather special. Uh, they have an important property that they can be obtained as the gradients of some simple scalar quantity. So if you define phi to be some constant that depends on your unit system times charge over radius, or that's the, that's the electric potential, or you the gra gravitational potential is some product of the mass of the big body over radius, then you can obtain these electric and gravitational fields as the gradients of the, these quantities over here. So what that means, of course, is that here are, here are contours of constant potential, and the field runs perpendicular to these contours, and its magnitude is, goes inversely as, a, as, these, as the spacing of the, of the contours, so it depends on the steepness of the field. <coughs> this is an important computational advance because you can obtain the three numbers, the x, y, and z components of this vector electric field, clearly a vector in different directions at different places, uh, out of a single number, the, the potential, the electric, electrostatic potential. But we're still talking about mathematical fictions with no claim to reality. The next important development in this, in this line came from Ersted, <coughs> the beginning of the 19th century. So he demonstrated that if you have a wire carrying a current, then a compass needle, if you put it in this plane perpendicular to the wire, always points tangential to the wire. And if you scatter iron filings on a piece of paper and give them a bit of a shake, they will align themselves so you can see, in your mind's eye, you can see lines of force wrapping around the wire. <coughs> So you have the idea that the current in the wire is generating a magnetic field. Uh, again, the magnetic field is just, a, is just a, an imaginary fiction, which enables you to understand why it is that the iron filings uh, 
uh, align the way they do, or the compass needle aligns the way, way it does. I think the field really becomes concrete, <coughs> it really becomes more than a mathematical entity with Michael Faraday in the, mid, uh, in the early part of the first half or so of the 19th century, a tiny bit later. He, put, he shows that uh, his, his, most important, his most important discovery, and it was an epochal discovery because our civilization depends uh, completely on this piece of technology, that if you take a magnet and you move it towards a loop of wire, you cause the galvanometer connected to the wire to kick. And the way he imagined this uh, was that there was a magnetic field which came out of the North Pole and went into the South Pole of the magic, of the, ma of the magnet, <laughs> it is magic. Uh, and when this magnetic field cuts through that wire, it generates a swirling electric field which, which rushes around, uh, swirls around the wire, pushing the electrons uh, or the charges in the wire through the galvanometer. So attached to his magnet, there is a palpable physical thing which, which does something to the wire as it sweeps over the wire. And of course, this mathematically, we represent this by this beautiful simple formula saying that the curl of E, the swirling of E, the electric field, is proportional to minus the rate of change of the magnetic field. So for this to make sense, the, 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 at least the magnetic field has become real, and its reality uh, has, has generated a sort of conviction in the reality of the electric field as well. as a real physical thing which is really sweeping those electrons around through that galvanometer. But reality became an absolute certainty with the work of Maxwell. Maxwell, uh, in the middle of the 19th century, complemented Faraday's discovery by, by pure thought, by pure deduction, not experiment this time, pure deduction, this was a classic piece of theoretical physics, he concluded that a time-changing electric field would generate a swirling magnetic field. So Faraday had said that a time-changing magnetic field would generate a swirling electric field. Uh, Maxwell deduced that the converse must be true and a time-changing electric field generated a swirling magnetic field. And then it followed from this, this, if this was true, then mathematics showed that the electric and magnetic fields could generate each other. The electric field changing in time, the swirling electric field changing in time could generate a swirling magnetic field changing in time, which would generate the swirling electric field and so on ad infinitum. A truly, uh, I mean, it's clearly too good to be true, uh, you would say, but um, so these fields have, have detached themselves from charges. The electric field used to be made by a charge. The magnetic field used to be made by a current. But now the electric field is making the magnetic field. The magnetic field is making the electric field. And there are no charges present whatsoever. So these fields are clearly absolutely real. And <coughs> the mathematics showed that ripples of changing electric and magnetic fields will propagate with a number of the speed <coughs> that was close to the speed of the measured speed of light, and um, uh, Maxwell deduced that that was what light was, um, and therefore, and I think he convinced everybody very quickly that that's what light was, and therefore everybody bought into this idea that um, an electric field, time-changing electric field, would generate a swirling magnetic field. 
So <coughs> visualization of what's happening here uh, is if I have a charge at this point here, <coughs> the electric field points at the, towards, if there's a negative charge, excuse me, I have a drink. The electric field points to where you've got the charge. <coughs> And if you move the charge, <coughs> if you move the charge um, to a new location, <coughs> the electric field has to start pointing to that place. <coughs> With information about your movement travels out from here only at the speed of light, so sufficiently far away from your new position of the charge, the electric field is still pointing to the old location, and the electric field in this in pointing in this near region, pointing to the new location, it has to join onto the electric field out here, pointing to the old location with a kink, with a kind of ripple, and that ripple spreads out from there at the speed of light, and that's why, and that's essentially what's happening when you launch an electromagnetic wave. It's actually a tiny bit more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea of why finite propagation speed uh, has to lead to radiation. If you shake, if you shake a charge to and fro, you're going to be sending out ripples <coughs> in the electric field, and therefore ripples in the magnetic field <coughs> through Maxwell and Faraday's principles, uh, and that's the origin of radiation. So we discovered, <coughs> so they had discovered by this time that action isn't at a distance. It's that the charges generate fields in their immediate vicinity, and these these fields propagate at a finite rate. Uh, at, Outwards. So action is local. This, this charge affects the nearby uh, space, which affects the nearby, the further away space, and so on. So space communicates with other space. It isn't action at a distance. It's a local effect, and it isn't instantaneous either. So the next part of the story comes with Lorentz and Einstein. Lorentz, uh, Henrik Lorentz, the Dutchman, was uh, studying Maxwell's equations and he noted, curiosity, that these equations were unchanged if you made a coordinate change from position and time x and t to a new position and time x primed and t primed that were related by this matrix here where beta is a number less than 1 and gamma is obtained out of beta by this formula over here. Very simple matrix, very simple coordinate change why are the equations unchanged by this change, by this coordinate change? Uh, Einstein provided the answer. Einstein explained that, um, again, physical interpretation, he said that this is the position and time uh, as used by one observer, and this is the position and time as used by an observer who is moving with respect to the first observer. So this was, uh, uh, came as quite a shock uh, to the community because it, the crucial thing was that the new time coordinate wasn't equal to the old time coordinate. And the time interval between two events uh, to the primed person <coughs> would not be the same as the time interval between the same two events to the untimed person, unprimed person. So there was, it destroyed the Newtonian sense of absolute time. However, um, by the 1920s, and it did take from 1905 to the 1920s, where the Nobel Prize Committee, Swedish Academy, was thinking what prize Einstein should get uh, towards the, around 1918, because it was clear he should get a Nobel Prize. They didn't really feel it was appropriate to give him the prize for relativity because it was too speculative <coughs> and unsupported by proper experimental evidence. 
so he got it for kinetic theory instead. So, and the, so the, 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 the interpretation, the physical interpretation uh, uh, was not easy to buy, um, uh, but we, we definitely bought it, and the, the significance of, of Maxwell's equations being invariant under this coordinate transformation is that the equations, uh, the, uh, the physical significance is that the way physics happens in the unprimed laboratory or the laboratory that's at rest with respect to the primed observer is exactly the same. Since the equations are the same, everything will unfold the same and you won't be able to tell by doing experiments with electromagnetism inside your laboratory whether you're moving, with, whether you're moving in any sense. So all notion will be relative rather than absolute. So, the, the, the <coughs> we really, by the, by the acceptance of, of special relativity in the 1920s, uh, 20th century physics in some sense, or so the large part of more classical 20th century physics was, uh, was fixed. Um, the, the ether, far from being, having been abolished by, uh, by Einstein, was absolutely established. So the ether is space-time. There's the, the, the space and time are some kind of a medium. And in the rest of the 20th century, it became apparent that you can understand the whole material world as nothing but excitations of this medium. The fundamental, crucial thing is the fundamental equations of physics must be invariant under Lorentz's transformation. Uh, and we'll see that this, this requirement restricts the dynamics of the ether to just a handful of possibilities. It enables you by pure thought pretty much to say what's going to happen. And I now want to introduce you to uh, Lagrangian densities, which are the intellectual tool that we use to exploit this, uh, the, to, to, to show how the possible dynamics of space-time is, is restricted by this requirement that everything be Lorentz invariant. Uh, and Lagrangians, of course, go back to Lagrange, who turns out to have been a, uh, an Italian who worked most of his career in St. Petersburg or Berlin, but because it was the 18th century French find his name. So uh, Lagrange showed that mechanics of projectiles followed paths which were the paths along which the action was least of all the paths they could take. So the path is, is x as a, as a function of time, uh, at each time the projectile is at some particular position x, and the x's of t, when you integrate them, and there's some function of position and velocity, the Lagrangian, that goes in here, if you do this integral here, you get a number for each path, and, and the path chosen is the path along which this integral is least. We now understand that the origin of this lies in quantum mechanics, but in the 18th century, they they toy with they sort of had feelings that this was something to do with we live in the best of all possible worlds and the Almighty operates in the most economical possible way. <laughs> anyway, the Lagrangian, this function of x and t, is already a simple system for difference between the kinetic and the potential energy. So the energy is the sum of these two things, and everybody's familiar with energy, even politicians know about energy, or think they do, <laughs> but they don't know about this difference, which actually is what governs the dynamics of the universe. So given L of x and v, you can derive the equations of motion from, it's just a mathematical exercise, which indeed goes back to Newton himself, but it, the, the, these equations go by the name of the Euler-Lagrange equations. The first exercise of this sort was in fact done by Newton himself. 
It's just a mathematical exercise to, out of this principle, to extract the ordinary equations of motion. So a field, such as phi here, uh, also evolves so as to minimize an action. And this action is a more complicated thing. It's an integral both over space and time. It has to be over space because the field exists everywhere. It isn't, the particle is in some particular place, and you consider its coordinate at a place, but the field is everywhere. And if you're going to determine its dynamics, you have to consider its value <coughs> everywhere. So there is a certain function, the Lagrangian density, curly L, of, of the field and its derivatives, its derivatives with respect to space and time, this stands for. So given a field, a configuration of the field in space and time, you can pop phi and its gradients into this function and get a number. If you integrate those numbers over all space and time, you get an action. And the evolution of the field is, uh, over time is the one which extremizes, which uh, makes it as small as possible, usually this, this integral. And I'm going to talk about how this Lagrangian density is built up out of the field and its gradients. The point is, once you know what this, what this function is, it's a mere function, you, through, um, through just a, a mathematical hand-turning, you have determined the complete dynamics. You've specified the complete dynamics of the field. So everything in the physics is encapsulated in this function. So there are Euler-Lagrange equations to go from this principle to the field equations, just as there are Euler-Lagrange equations to go from this principle to the ordinary Newtonian equations of motion. So to see how this works, let's look at the wave equation. Here is the simplest possible wave equation, uh, such as the pressure excesses in this room uh, obey, that communicate between us. Um, and this equation derives from this Lagrangian density, so this is the time derivative of the field, this is the space derivative of the field. This you can think of, as, of course, as kinetic energy, this you can think of as potential energy. So in this case, the uh, simple way of making the Lagrangian, density, the Lagrangian density works fine. Things to note, this is a linear equation, and therefore it, the linearity here derives from the fact that this is quadratic in the gradients. It's quadratic in the field and its gradients. In fact, it only contains the gradients, it doesn't contain the field. Uh, and that's because the Euler-Lagrange equations involve a differentiation with respect to these things, so you lose a power. So when you go from here to here, you lose the power of the field, and quadratic Lagrangians generate linear wave equations. And the other thing to notice is that this equation is unchanged by a Lorentz transformation. That's not off the bat. You, probably, you may well know that. It's not finding the obvious. Uh, and this thing is also unchanged. So if you go from xt to x prime t prime, these gradients here change, but the Lagrangian does not change. So those are two very important, two very important <coughs> properties. A more complicated example, a significantly more complicated example then is given by electromagnetism. Now we think of the field as the four components of the electromagnetic potential. So previously we were talking about the electric and magnetic fields. Uh, they indeed are called fields, but for a theoretical physicist they're merely the gradient of the field. The field is this, this, this object up here. And you extract out of this object up here the magnetic field by taking the curl of the three spatial components. And you, ex you get the electric field as a combination of the, of the gradient of the time component which is essentially, which is the electrostatic potential with a sign, uh, and the, the time derivative 
of the spatial components. So this one is encoding electrostatics that E is minus grad phi, and this one is encoding Faraday's swirling electric field associated with a time-changing magnetic field, because if you take the curl of this, that drops away, you find the curl E is minus the gradient of curl A, which is minus the gradient of QBPT, minus QBPT. So, okay, so we have the, so this is the field up here. It's now a four-component object, not a one-component object. And here, if we just have the electromagnetic field in empty space, it, the, each, every component obeys the wave equation. And that comes from a Lagrangian density, which consists of E squared minus B squared. Unfortunately, some committee in Paris decided that electric fields will be measured in different units than magnetic fields. You have to put a factor of C underneath here, but the electric and magnetic fields are just two parts of one phenomenon, and they should absolutely have the same units. So E over C is essentially the same as B. So this you can think of as kinetic energy. This you can think of as potential energy. The, the justification for this is kinetic energy is that you've got a decay by dt. Anyway, this is the Lagrangian density. Again, this is quadratic in field gradients. So we have, so this is really d phi by d something, d phi by d something. So this is quadratic in gradients, just as we had the Lagrangian density being quadratic in gradients, in gradients before. Uh, and again, this Lagrangian, this number won't change when you go to a prime to a to the frame of reference of a moving uh, observer, provided provided the, these things, these, this thing transforms according to this rule, that the, the time components and the space components of the unprimed person are related to the primed person's components by multiplication by this, by this Lorentz transformation matrix. In other words, this thing has to transform like a four vector. Given that, then this thing doesn't change. The numerical value of this stays the same at, at, at a given event, uh, and that makes this equation uh, valid in every coordinate system. To give another example, uh, go to the of, of how, how we build up a field theory, uh, go to Dirac, who was the third in a great series of a series of British uh, theoretical physicists. He was trying in, in, in the late 20s, he was trying to find a relativistic generalization of the Schrodinger equation, but what he actually discovered was a new aspect of the ether, a four-component four field game like the EMAG field, except now each of, these, each of these numbers is a complex number, not a real number, but a complex number. So it's a complex four-value, uh, a complex four-component field, and under the Lorentz transformation, this thing transforms in a new way. It doesn't transform in a way not, not previously known to physicists, but previously known to mathematicians. It transforms like a direct spinner. We don't need to worry about what exactly this rule is, it's just that there is some matrix M, depending on the speed, the, the relationship between, between your uh, observers, if you go from one frame of reference to another frame of reference, so I've symbolized that by beta, this V over C, um, that operates between the two things. So there is some matrix that you, you, you multiply for every change, for every pair of observers, there's some matrix uh, which you multiply on these four components to get the four components and the other thing. Uh, and uh, the, the importance of the Dirac field is that electrons and positrons are excitations of this field, as Joe will talk about later. So, uh, 
So let's just have a look how this mathematically works out. This is a somewhat different, this is a slightly different looking wave equation, and this is a slightly different looking Lagrangian density. But what's basically happening is we now have a first order differential equation or a second order differential wave equation. We have the psi value x is equal to sort of a multiple of a psi. And if you just left, if, if the coefficient here were real, you would have, uh, uh, you, you wouldn't get, you get exponential growth or exponential decline in the field value would be the solutions to the equation. And you want a wavy behavior, so we have a square root of minus one over here, which ensures that we have, uh, because it's a first order equation, we need that in order to get wavy behavior. What else is there to remark? This is, uh, the other complication is that this is, a, this is a set of four numbers, this is a set of four numbers, and here is a matrix which depends on which coordinate we're dealing with. Um, and here are a couple of these matrices, okay. So, so this is a linear uh, differential equation, partial differential equation, it's at this time only first order, uh, and this is the Lagrangian density that generates it. Here is basically a, a sort of dot product, a kind of dot product of the vector on itself. Here is a dot product, well, a, 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 row, a row vector, a matrix, and a column vector. And now we have the Lagrangian is quadratic in the field, and it's gradient like that. Um, I think that's all. And, and crucially, uh, this stays the same if you make a Lorentz transformation, with, including the proper transformation of the four numbers that go into a side. So, uh, what about the coupling between fields? If you want to generate electromagnetic waves, you need an antenna, and the antenna you need to have you need to have some currents. So, that, so the full equation we we had a zero over here before because we were discussing emag waves in empty space. If you have an antenna, you have to put there's a, there's a term here which is some city constant times the current density. This is the current density, which is of course a vector. So that's the that's the wave equation, including the sources. If you have electrons and they are moving in an electric field, of course, their motion is different. Uh, so, sorry, sorry, this is the Lagrangian density. This is the Lagrangian density which generates this differential equation. So it's the, the original Lagrangian density we discussed before. And here is the extra term that generates this thing here. But electrons are going to be the source that this current is actually made by moving electrons. And the way they the, the formula that deals with that is the charge on the electron times the psi, 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 which is sort of the density of, it's sort of the density, the property density of electrons, and then we have one of these, one, have one of these gamma matrices, these Dirac matrices inside here to provide the vectorialness. So the current density associated with the Dirac field is this. So what we want to do is replace that with this, and replace that with this, uh, and uh, write out what the, so what does the Lagrangian density for the whole thing look like? Here is the Lagrangian density for the electromagnetic waves all on their own. Here is the Lagrangian density for the, for the electrons all on their own. And here is the coupling term, that's this term here, or this term, this, this term here. Here is the coupling term that joins the two together and expresses both how the electrons generate electromagnetic waves, but also this term explains how or, or forces the, the way that the electromagnetic field changes the dynamics of the charged particles to the electrons. 
So the coupling, so this is quadratic in the field gradients, this is quadratic in the field and its gradients, and this mixed term here is cubic. It has, it has uh, one representative of one field and two representatives of another field. So you can, you can put, so this, <coughs> this encodes a huge, a prodigious amount of physics. It's, the, it's a very simple expression, and there isn't much choice in what expressions to write down here because the requirement for the rents invariance, the requirement that these things remain unchanged when you make every one of these terms remains unchanged when you do a Lorentz transformation, um, is, is enormously prescriptive. So here's my, here's my summary. In space-time, the ether, vacuum, it's called by various names, is a complex dynamical system, and it carries several, we've only talked about two, many component fields. Um, it, can it, it carries a great many, many component fields. We can derive the wave equations to describe uh, this system from a single Lagrangian density. So I've only written down the beginning of a Lagrangian density. As we add more fields, we will need more, more terms, but they'll be made in the same way by, by a block describing how the field works on its own and coupling terms explaining how it connects to the other fields present. And the requirement of Lorentz invariance of the Lagrangian density enormously strongly restricts the possible field equations, so uh, making it possible to speculate very, to, to, to almost exhaustively consider all logically possible uh, uh, types of physics. And this Lagrangian density comprises a block for each mode, yeah, for free, that describes free particles uh, plus coupling terms between the blocks. So that's all that I wanted to say. I'm aware of Joe.